know your numbers and believe your numbers. Uh, <laughs> the house we lost all that money in, we had no clue about numbers. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, got two questions for you, and this is for my fix and flippers out there. One, are your financing costs eating away your bottom line? And two, are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by reducing your loan payments to the bank or private lender? Of course you are, right? You're always looking to maximize the potential of your deal. So here's a solution. We got a solution for you through the crowdfunding platform, Patch of Land. If you're a loyal Best Ever listener, you know Patch of Land. They've been on the show many times. They've sponsored the show many times. They're back for more because they love you. They want to help you out. They want to add value to your life. And here's how they're going to do it. They have a solution to your financing issue of financing costs eating away from your bottom line. And they want to help you reduce your loan payments to the bank. So here we go. Patch of Land offers a fix and flip loan program that only charges interest on the funds that have been dispersed as opposed to the traditional model of lenders charging interest on the whole loan amount at the beginning. You save a lot of money this way and it can be misleading when you get your terms quoted to you by the lender at a particular rate if they charge all the interest up front versus upon distribution. Patch of Land's got a document that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper to educate yourself on questions you should ask the lender. Regardless if you go with Patch of Land, you've got to get this document to educate yourself on the questions to ask your lender to make sure you're getting the best financing terms. The document's at patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. That's patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Patch of Land, they can close in as little as seven days and they can help you through this program save thousands of dollars on your deals, make more money, and uh, have a better business and grow your fix and flip business. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluff with us today. JD Martin, how you doing, JD? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you for joining us. Here's the deal about JD. He has got some real estate experience that he's going to talk to us about. But first, thank you, sir, for your service. He is a U.S. Navy Gulf War vet. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I first and foremost, thank you for that. And then now let's talk about real estate. You hold a doctorate degree in public administration, and JD is also a real estate investor and owner of Biz Brainstormers, which is a real estate business and personal consulting company. He's the executive director of Utility System, and he's an adjunct professor for two major universities. With that being said, JD, you want to give us a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. All of that was right. And uh, what I do mostly in real estate is we have buy and hold properties, and we don't have a lot of them. We got about a dozen of them. But we kind of started this off about 15 years ago, was our beginning of our real estate adventure. And we lost a boatload of money and kind of got out of it for a little while. <laughs> and then when we came back, we decided to focus on rental properties. And since then, we've created a pretty good stream of income and about seven figures in equity. Hmm. You start 15 years ago-ish, and you said you lost a boatload of money. How'd you lose it? 
Well, when we first started messing around with real estate, we were just middle-class workers and we had had a couple of houses that we'd owned ourselves and we decided to build a house. We'd originally started off with new construction. We thought we would actually live in the house. And then as we kind of got into it, we thought, well, maybe we'll sell this and make some money and kind of go that route. And the entire process turned into a disaster. Our timing was wrong and everything. Our numbers were wrong and everything. Our relationship with the bank was rough, and when it was all said and done, we had lost over $100,000 on that project. And we were people that didn't have $100,000 to lose. So we lost this big chunk of money. We said, okay, well, I don't think we're going to do real estate anymore. We're just going to work our jobs and maybe put a little away for retirement. We'll come back to this maybe someday or maybe someday never. And then about, I don't know, five or six years ago, we had accumulated a pretty good chunk of equity. And we saw it wasn't making any money. And we said, well, what do we do with this? So we started looking at real estate again. We had some of the typical things people have, IRAs and pension fund and things like that, but nothing that was really too exciting, wasn't making a lot of money. And we said, you know, we got this education of hard knocks from mm -hmm. losing all this money on this new construction. So maybe we can use some of that knowledge and apply it to something that'll create a cash flow. And it just kind of snowballed from there. On the development deal, is that all on one deal that you lost 100000 Yes, that was all on one house. And that was the house you were going to move into and live in? Yes. Originally, we started off, it was going to be a new construction for ourselves. We had a house. We were going to sell the house we were in while we were building this house. So we were going to build this house and then sell what we were in. And then once we got into it a little bit, we said, well... The market seems kind of slow for used houses, so to speak, but new construction's hopping. So let's sell this, make some money, and then we'll kind of figure it out from there. And neither strategy worked out. <laughs> well, what'd you, what'd you end up doing? We, we ended up selling the new construction. So we did end up selling it, but we sold it at a huge discount. We had cost overruns everywhere. We had self-inflicted mistakes, things that we didn't understand the numbers very well on. We had problems with our draws. We had construction loans from the bank that came through in draws, and we had problems with the draws. And then we had competition that started when we were about maybe three-quarters of the way through this thing. We had major competition. A developer bought an enormous farm, essentially across the street from where we were building, bought an entire farm, and just started dropping houses everywhere. <laughs> and oh, we could man. not compete at all with that. So they were putting houses down so fast. These guys had houses down faster than we could do simple things like run plumbing. <laughs> and um, yeah, and their margins, I don't know what their numbers were, but I'm sure their margins were really tight, but they were doing 200 houses, so they could be really tight and we just didn't have that luxury. So by the time it was all said and done, we were lucky not to go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, that was a perfect storm of disaster is what, that, what happened. It was there. a perfect storm of disaster. Yeah, it was a very expensive education. It worked out in the long run, I guess, because when we started buying the rental houses, we kind of without that education, knowing what goes into, because we were the GCs, so without knowing what went into electrical and plumbing and framing and roofing and drywall and, and even things like grading property. And without knowing those things, then we probably would have been at a disadvantage when it came to looking at rental properties. We were buying things that were value added where the properties had become dilapidated and were going to need work. And without that kind of experience and background and education, when we came in to look at these rental properties, we could look at them and say, well, I pretty much know what's involved in doing this, or I know what the cost is going to be involved in doing this. And I believe it gave us a competitive advantage in the marketplace and we started buying houses. Who's we? Me and my wife. I'm sorry. You, you <laughs> yeah. and your wife. Me, I'm okay. married, so me and my when, wife, yes. 
when the dust settled on the $100,000 loss, what are the conversations like between you and your wife about the project? <laughs> uh, some of them were kind of ugly. We never came close to divorce <laughs> or anything like that, but that would have broke a lot of relationships that didn't break ours. I guess the conversation, once the dust had settled and we'd finished, it was like, okay, how do we repair this damage? We finally unloaded the house, but we were left with huge stacks of bills everywhere. So the question was, okay, well, how do we repair this damage? And the way we repaired it is probably the way most middle-class people would approach it at that time is we just kind of put our noses down and got to work and just went out and worked our jobs and did side hustle here and there, wherever you could make a little money and applied all that money towards becoming solvent again and cleaning up the mess that we made and the, and the mess that we were left with. So that took a while. I mean, on mm -hmm. middle-class salaries, that's a multi-year project for sure. But after a few years, we managed to clean up all that debt and clean up that damage. And then from there, we were able to start taking money and putting it aside. We've always kind of lived underneath our means We've never really been big spenders or ostentatious people. And so we just started setting money aside and kind of accumulating this little nest egg. And then we didn't really know what we were going to do with that nest egg. Eventually, we went into the rental properties. But at that time, we just kind of set it aside as, hey, let's have something to fall back on and some cash reserves instead of where we were before. For a best ever listener who might be going through something similar to what you two went through, and they have a significant other husband or wife, any advice or thoughts that you have for them for how to approach those conversations? And you just went through the situation for how to resolve it from a tactical standpoint, but from a more conversation standpoint, before you get into that, any tips for those conversations? I think the things that helped us is one, we never were accusatory towards each other. I'm sure I made the bulk of the mistakes because I kind of spearheaded the project. And so I would say a lot of the fault lay with me, but even things that my wife might've been kind of the lead on, or maybe didn't put enough input on, we never got accusatory. When everything was done, we kind of looked and said, okay, this is our mess. This is not, hey, look what you did to us. And now what are we going to do? We always kind of approached it as a team and approaches, okay, so we went into this together. It didn't work. We'll get out of it together. Even during the process, there was a point when we knew we were going to lose a lot of money. It wasn't like we were all done and said, uh-oh, we're going to lose money. I mean, there was a point about three quarters of the way in that we knew it was going to be a beating at that point. It was just finish it up and let's get out of this. And when we were at that realization, it's just a matter of being honest with each other, not holding back information or even kind of holding back your feelings. There was times when I was scared, hey, we're going to lose the house that we live in. Forget about the new construction. We're going to lose mm -hmm. our own house. And just being honest with those feelings and not running from them, so to speak. Now you started squirreling away some money. And then how many years until you bought your next property? It was about 10 years. So it was a pretty good distance, but when you come out of something that traumatic, for people at that point in my life, I'd never even made $100,000. Neither one of us had mm -hmm. combined. We hadn't made 100000 So when you come out of something that traumatic, it took a little bit of time before we had the, I don't know if I want to say guts, but the wherewithal to get back into even looking at real estate. And even when we did, I remember the first couple of conversations we had about it was like, <laughs> do we really want to do this? Yeah, we've mm -hmm. been down that road before and it was ugly. This was not good at all. So it was about 10 years, but you have to realize that five years of that, maybe even six, five to six years of that was just cleaning up the damage, really, that was left over from all that. So yeah, it was about 10 years. At that 10-year mark, right before you two pulled the trigger on the next deal, 
what was the conversation like? And were one of you going in one direction, the other, the other direction was one like good cop, the other bad cop on doing it? To some extent, I think that's true. My wife was probably more bad cop than me. I think when we started having that conversation, it was like, okay, we accumulated this chunk of money and we had accumulated a pretty healthy pot of cash at that point. And we said, okay, we've accumulated this chunk of money and we have some IRAs and we have some other stuff. We could put this in an index fund or something else like that. But neither one of us are really that comfortable with the stock market. We don't know a lot about it. We have Vanguard funds and things like that. But So we have this money. What should we do with it? And when we kind of kicked around the conversations of what options were out there, real estate kind of kept coming back. And we had kind of looked at the market and saw that there was what we thought maybe was an opportunity locally to get into doing some rental property. And so I guess my wife was probably more the bad cop than me in terms of being more, hey, let's make sure we really have the numbers straight on this before we even think about doing it. But we were more or less on the same team. I don't think there was really that much disagreement either way on doing it or not doing it. We had a lot of conversations about it before we even started looking at houses. Now let's fast forward to today. What type of deals are you buying? What we're buying today is we generally are looking for value-added buy-and-hold properties. So we're usually looking for two to three-bedroom houses, one to two bath, two bath if we can get it. One seems to be more typical. And we're usually looking at things that we can get in at 50% or less of the after rehab value. So if a house is worth 100000 fixed up, we're looking at things that we can pick up for 50 or less. And most of these houses will need anywhere from five to $20,000 worth of rehab to them. So that when we're done, and we haven't really leveraged much, we've leveraged a few houses, but most everything we hold outright. But when we're done, if we want to leverage out of it or sell it, that we have a pretty good chunk of equity already in it that there's really, if we wanted to get our cash back out of it, we would essentially leave nothing behind. All of our own money would be cashed out. So that's mostly what we look for. We have a specific niche that we aim for, which is we're in a college town. And so we aim for neighborhoods that appeal to college students, mostly graduate students, but not exclusively. So kind of look in that niche. And we have a pretty narrow scope, probably a lot narrower than most real estate investors, but I still work a day job. I'm a few years from retirement. And we always looked at this as just a way to invest this nest egg. We never really set out to be real estate moguls or create an empire. But as we went and kind of picked these houses, it just kind of snowballed from there and created a pretty healthy stream of income. How many different streams of income do you have? We've got a dozen properties. Other than that, of course, I've got my day job and I've got two part-time gigs. My wife is retired, so we got her retirement income. So, you know, if you looked at each property as its own income stream and then everything, you know, we've got 15, 16 streams of income, which I think is probably paramount to existing in this new economy where anybody who's dependent on just their job or even just their two jobs, if they're a dual income household, both people working. To me, it's, I don't want to say it's crazy thinking, but you're depending, you're putting a lot of of dependence on one or two things going right. So creating this multiple stream income approach has been fantastic for us. It's created a situation where I could leave my work and we just keep chugging along. Do you manage your own properties? We do. It's a small portfolio and everything is local. I can be at any property that we own in 15 minutes. So it's a pretty small portfolio. It's a local portfolio. How many hours a week do you work in your day job? 
My day job works out to roughly 50, maybe a little less than that, but I run a utility district and I'm not that far from retirement. So it works out to roughly 50. Some weeks are less than that. Some weeks are easier than others. But if you average it out, it works out to about nine, 10 hours a day. What advice do you have for someone who is looking to efficiently manage their portfolio? Because you clearly have a system in place with a full-time job. You have to be incredibly efficient with your 12 rentals, plus you said two part-time gigs, which means you have to be even more efficient with your rentals. So what tips do you have? Well, the first thing, one thing we do, and we kind of did this in the beginning, is when we pick up a house, the house is fully rehabbed before we put it on the market. So we don't put it on with a roof that's got one year left of age in it or appliances that have seen their better days and just about to break down. When we get a house, we go through it, and anything that's anywhere near the end of its life gets replaced. So that when we put it on the market and somebody gets in it, there's almost nothing for us to do. Some of our houses, we haven't, other than going back for an inspection once a year, looking at it, we haven't been back to the house for a year. And by putting that in place, that's one thing we've done to minimize time outlay. Another thing we've done is been very stringent on our tenant screening. So our rental prices are probably a little bit lower than what we could get if we really wanted to push it on the market. But from my point of view, I want a big pool of renters and I want a strong pool of renters. I want to have my choice of the cream of the crop rather than just whatever's left over. So by doing that, we get strong renter pools and then we screen them very heavily because I think if you minimize your tenant turnover and you minimize the aggravating tenants that you can get, it's going to really make your life a lot simpler. So those are two things. Aside from that, I have a small pool of trusted contractors that I can use to handle things I don't want to deal with. So I have a good plumber. I have a good HVAC guy. I've got a good electrician. So if anything major comes up that requires some kind of immediate attention, I can pick up a phone call. Actually, I do everything by text mostly, but I can pick up the text and say, hey, you've got a heating unit that's not firing. And he says, okay, I'll be out there by 11. And that's the end of it. Sends me a bill and we're done. How much do your homes rent for on average? I won't buy anything that I don't think I can make at least 1% per month of whatever my basis in it is. So for me, I consider my basis whatever I paid for the property plus whatever it cost me to rehab it, plus any ancillary opening costs if I had to keep it for six months and pay electric for six months or whatever the case may be. So if I had a property that I bought for 50 and I put 20 in it, I have 70,000 in it, that house has to rent for at least $700 or I wouldn't buy it. So most of our properties are renting for 1.1 to 1.6, 1.7 above what we have in them. So the annual cash return on them after you take out expenses might be some of them as low as maybe 10 or 11% and some of them as high as 17%, something like that. Based on your experience, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? <laughs> My best real estate advice ever is know your numbers and believe your numbers. Uh, <laughs> the house we lost all that money in, we had no clue about numbers. We weren't dumb people. We just didn't really understand how to truly figure out the cost of holding that house and the cost of construction. We could figure out, okay, we got an estimate of $10,000 to do framing, but we forgot about $2,000 in doors and things like that. So we really had no firm handle on the numbers. And then even today, when we buy the rentals, every once in a while, I'll see a property and I think, oh, I really want that property. And then I run the numbers and they just don't work. And then you get to the temptation of, oh, maybe I can make these numbers work. Maybe I can kind of finagle here and make this. And it doesn't work. If the numbers aren't there, 
don't pretend that you can make them there. And that's my best advice is you have to know how to do the numbers and then you have to believe your numbers. Once you put it down, if you figured out the most you can pay for this property is 75,000 and they come back at 76,000, you got to walk. It doesn't sound like nothing, but if you've done your numbers and you trust them and 75 is your top out point, then 75,000 and $1 is over that point and you've mm. got to go. That's also a great way to condition yourself if you do walk on that seemingly minor difference in price point because then that would help you walk during more high stakes situations because you're not continually letting things slip for what you want versus what you're getting. I agree. I think what happens is that you rationalize. You say, oh, well, it's only $1,000 over what my max was. Yeah, but your max is already the highest thing you could make this work at to begin with. When I do a max number, I know that, hey, if I have to pay more than this, then this property is not going to make any money. And why would I want to own any properties that don't make money? Ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got a document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space, but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com. Best ever book you've read? Best ever book I've read in business would be Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin. Kind of maybe a close second might be Millionaire Next Door. Both of those are life-changing in terms of changing your mindset. So business-wise, those would be probably my favorite books. For enjoyment, I liked Flight of Passage by Rinker Buck. It was a good book. Best ever song you've written? <laughs> Best ever song I've written? I guess I would have to say God Guns and NASCAR because that's the song that made it to the Super Bowl. <laughs> Although it personally might not be my own favorite, it's certainly my most famous. <laughs> and it made it to the Super Bowl in what way? It was played at the Super Bowl in the 49ers and Ravens. It was actually, I play in a professional rock band when I'm not doing all this other stuff. And we had played at some clubs and one of the sound people worked sound for the Tennessee Titans NFL team and he was part of the sound crew for the Super Bowl and our song was part of his playlist. What's your band? My band is the Rhythm Brewers and it's rhythmbrewers.com if anybody wants to look us up. Best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I've done was probably one where it was a foreclosure and we had put in an offer in on it and the bank didn't move on it. We went down there, there was people coming out of the woodwork. Everybody put in an offer, and this was probably 15 offers on this thing. And then the bank realized they had something that would go for pretty good money. So they said, we think we're going to reject all the offers, just put on the auction. So it looked like everybody was shot out of the water. Well, in between that, before they could get it on the auction site, an investment company came in and bought a huge portfolio from this bank and bought maybe a 1,000 houses. And I guess the deal was when they bought this 1,000 houses, the bank made them take some things that were in areas that they thought they might not be as well-received, and this house is one of them. So when this investment company had come through and bought this, they realized we'd had an offering on it before, and they called our agent and said, hey, are your investors still interested in this house? We don't really want it. It doesn't fit our 
portfolio, so we're willing to just give it to them for their offer. <laughs> we said, oh, yes, we're ready because we, <laughs> we ended up with a 60 in it and it's worth about 150. So if we sold it today, we made, I don't know, a couple hundred percent. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction that you haven't mentioned already? Mistake I've made on a transaction that I haven't mentioned already, I would say probably a house that I bought where when I did the numbers, I had inadvertently left something out that the house that was being for sale, they'd already priced it with leaving that number out. And then we got into a deal. And then when I went back and realized, oh, I really should have accounted for this. It still ended up being a good deal even with that. They weren't willing to move on that number once we'd come to a price. So it still ended up being a good deal, but it cost me a few thousand dollars just on the error of not accounting for that. I think it was a roof, but when we had gone through it, we didn't account for that in terms of our offer. Best ever way you like to give back? I like to give back. I've got this little website called bizbrainstormers.com and I do kind of real estate and personal finance mentoring and it doesn't really make any money and I charge a little bit of money, but I do that just to make sure they're serious because I talk to a lot of people and I'm on some other real estate websites and I talk to a lot of people and There's a lot of dreamers and kind of tire kickers out there. And so I charge a little bit of money, but it's minuscule for the amount of time I spend with people. And I wish that something like that was around when I was doing my first deal because I didn't even have anybody to talk real estate with at that point. We just kind of winged it and we hadn't winged it. Somebody else that could have been a disinterested viewer could have said, hey, you guys are getting in way over your heads here and maybe save us a bunch of money. And so I try to do that. Outside of that, I meet a lot of times with investors that live locally and say, hey, can we go to lunch and talk? And I do that with them for nothing. And I participate in online forums and try to give out whatever knowledge or advice I've been able to accumulate. So those are kind of the ways I try to give back in this thing. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? They can go to that website, which is bizbrainstormers.com. They can go to my band's website, which is rhythmbrewers.com. They can send me an email. and I've got emails on both those websites. They can send me an email from either place there, and I'd be glad to talk to anybody. Well, J.D., thank you for sharing lessons learned and what you're doing now that has built your portfolio from the lessons learned standpoint. Holy cow, timing and numbers. Know your numbers. Know your timelines and believe in your numbers and hold true to your numbers. Starting out with new construction right out of the gate is incredibly challenging. And it is something that if we do that, then we'll definitely, as I'm sure you'll agree, want to be aligned with some other people who perhaps even have money in the deal with us who have the experience. That way it mitigates risk. I certainly wouldn't recommend that as a starting strategy. And I think there's other ways to get your feet wet. Completely agree. And then when something like that happens, because as long as we're doing real estate over a long period of time, we're going to have some projects perform, unfortunately, the wrong way, not how we have planned. And when we're in business relationships or relationships in general, one insight that you have is don't get accusatory. Instead, focus on solutions and really grow together, not grow apart. And that's something I have recognized. When I was working in advertising, I worked with some people who, when we got into a challenging situation, we knew that they were just going to attack us and we're going to eventually grow further apart versus it's actually an opportunity to grow together as a team. And that's an important part. Then the additional streams of income, you've got lots of streams of income from two part-time gigs, a day job, and then your rental portfolio, as well as how you lower or make the management as efficient as possible 
by fully rehabbing the homes before you put it on market. That way you don't get as many phone calls. So thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you again for your service. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com.